All right, welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for March 26, 2021. I am Bob Ambrogi. I'm the uh, author of the blog Law Sites and host of the podcast Law Next. And this is the weekly or uh, aspirationally weekly uh, show in which we talk about the top news in legal tech and innovation. Um, and uh, before we get started, as we always do, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, going from Clockwise for me, Caroline, you want to start? Yeah, hi everyone, I'm Caroline Hill, Editor-in-Chief of Legal IT Insider, based in the UK, global audience, and I am a recovering litigator, but longer ago than I can probably remember. Another recovering litigator, Steve? Hi, I'm Steve Embry. I now publish the blog Tech Law Crossroads, which is about legal technology and innovation. Prior to that, I practiced law for a good number of years with a pretty large law firm and did a lot of defense mass tort work. All right, Zach. Hey, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm editor-in-chief of ALM's Legal Tech News. I'm based here in the Midwest in Minnesota, where they're opening up vaccines next week. I'm pumped. Yay. Victoria. Hey everyone, my name is Victoria Hudgens. I'm a reporter with Legal Tech News. Um, I work with Zach, who's my editor, to write about how the legal tech industry is evolving and how lawyers are using technology in their practice. Thank you, and Nikki? My name is Nikki Black, and I also happen to be a former litigator, and I am now the legal technology evangelist with my um, case, Law Practice Management Software, and I um, and I'm a legal tech journalist for outlets, including Above the Law, ABA Journal, um, my case, the My Case blog, and the Daily Record. And I also am in the middle of a high wind gust of up to 60 miles an hour here in upstate New York. So if I suddenly blink out, that's why I'll have lost internet and power. So we'll see how that goes. Or if your house is blown off the foundation and lands somewhere right. else, let's hope it's Oz. <laughs> right. And I got my Victor. red shoes on. <laughs> Good. Victor. Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I'm assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal, uh, covering the business of law and technology. I was a litigator for a very, very brief amount of time. It was like a flash in the pan. So kind of like the Baja men or um, well, tag team, they're back in the in, in, on TV these days. So maybe in 20 years, I'll have a comeback in a commercial somewhere. <laughs> We've got this whole litigator uh, theme going on here. Um, so uh, Molly McDonough and Joe Patrice are not able to be with us uh, today. Uh, I do want to point out to people, if they haven't seen him, Joe is running uh, his version of March Madness uh, on the Above the Law website, uh, ATL bracket, for, uh, for the, uh, the best uh, epic Zoom fails. And we've talked about a lot of these on this show over the last uh, couple of months. We talked about them on our weekly Clubhouse chat a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so check that out. Uh, and uh, might as well put in a plug for the clubhouse chat too. You want, Caroline, do you want to do that? Ah, sorry. Yes. <laughs> I couldn't get a grip of my mouse for a second. Uh, yes. So on Wednesday every week at 12.30 ET, uh, 5.30 GMT, once we get our clock change after this weekend, um, the same group as most of us anyway, um, meet uh, on Clubhouse. Um, we've got Legal Tech Trending News. Um, did I get that right, Nikki? Our club, our club name, Legal Tech Trend Trending News. 
Um, we get together, we've got now quite a lot of followers um, and we meet to discuss a variety of different topics. We're actually open to ideas. So on social media, when we when we promote the club, by all means chip in. And last week we talked about um, whether we wanted to attend conferences in person and we had quite a lot of people um, jumping in and, and joining in the conversation. So come and join us on Wednesday. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, all right, well, uh... We've got uh, got a bunch of stories, I guess, to talk about this week. Uh, it wasn't exactly, it wasn't a quiet week. Uh, uh, I think I'm going to start. I'm going to take my uh, moderator uh, privilege here and just kick it off with uh, the fact that yet another state has now adopted the duty of technology competence. It's something I've been following. I know Nikki writes a lot about it, um, uh, and uh, it it's the 39th state to adopt it and it's California. And I mean, to me, it's kind of uh, as, as significant as it is that California has finally adopted it. It's uh, equally uh, odd to me that it took California so long to adopt it because uh, not only is it California, uh, but they actually, you know, one of the earliest ethics opinions to talk about the duty of technology competence uh, in the e-discovery context came out of California and pretty much uh, uh, cited and uh, endorsed uh, the ABA rule on this. Uh, so I'm kind of surprised it took so long. Uh, you know, there's uh, lots of people who say, well, does it really matter? And is it really making any change? Uh, I think it does. I think it has. I think it's really made lawyers more, uh, at least a certain uh, segment of the legal profession, much more aware of their obligation to try and figure out technology and how it plays into not just their own practices, but into their into their the lives and businesses of their clients and how it can affect the cases and matters that they handle on behalf of their clients. Uh, I think it's really, you know, it's been since, what was it, 2012 they adopted this rule a long time ago now, but it's, I think it's really brought about a major change in uh, lawyers thinking about technology and use of technology. So one, one of the things I noticed from it, Bob, and you probably have too, is the, <clears throat> the plethora of CLE programs that are now being offered with respect to technology and talking about that kind of duty and really sort of has acquainted more lawyers on a broader base with, with uh, technology and how it may impact uh, their practice. And so that, you know, is, as we all know, most lawyers want ethical CLE and having comment eight ties legal technology into the ethical CLE uh, realm, which is uh, which increases attendance dramatically at, at most of those programs. I would point out a surprising thing that I learned maybe a couple of three months ago is, uh, of course, comment eight is couched in the terms of a lawyer should keep abreast, but there's one state, West Virginia, where the should is turned to change to must keep abreast. Uh, and, you know, in talking to, to the folks in West Virginia, they did, that was very purposeful that they did that, that, that they wanted to reiterate that to, to their practitioners there, which, you know, struck me as just kind of an interesting fact. That was interesting. It should be noted too, there are two states that have mandatory CLE around tech now, uh, South is it South Carolina, Courtney's. I don't know if Courtney's on here. South Carolina and Florida, I, I think, are the two. Does it, does it come with, um, in terms of tra training? Though, does it does it sort of come with any training obligations, or sort of down uh, earlier in the stream, as it were? Well, no. I mean, this, there, as I just said, there are, only, there are two states that now have mandatory CLA continuing education around technology. Uh, 
I, I don't know how substantive that training actually is. And I don't even know really how you train around this. I mean, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, but you know, it's really at the point where tech isn't just a, a practice skill for lawyers. It's a life skill. I mean, you really have to sort of understand technology on so many levels. And if you don't, I don't know how you function in this world very effectively. Uh, but, but the kind of what you have to know about tech uh, or the kind of tech you have to know about is going to depend a lot on the nature of your practice. If you're a litigator, then you need to understand a lot about, you know, how your, how your clients are, are storing data and where they're storing it and uh, that sort of thing. If you're a family lawyer, you need to probably understand social media, and the implications of that. And, uh, you know, so, and then of course you have to understand how it, how you can use it in your own practices and, and how it uh, can help you be more efficient and better serve clients and all that stuff in your own practices. So there's yeah. no easy answer to it. Yeah. In the comments. Listen, I'm sorry, Nikki, go ahead. I was going to say in the comments, um, Greg asked if, and Victor provided a link whether bar associations have sanctioned people for violating the technology competence requirement. And Victor provided a, um, oh, he provided a link to your, um, sorry, to your post. Yeah, no, but, I, wasn't, I wasn't responding to that okay. comment. I actually yeah, have no idea. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I, I actually haven't, I was gonna say, I have not heard of a specific case, but and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the basis for all sanctions are publicly shared. And I, I would think the technology competence would probably be something that's tacked onto something more egregious, like a specific type of, um, like a improper disclosure of information online or the like. You know, I think it's probably an an addition to some sort of more egregious specific type of conduct, and it may not even actually get mentioned. Uh, but I don't know if anyone else knows of any specific cases, but I don't know if that, on the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how Florida and South Carolina do things, but I know in New York, it's like they audit you every, um, I mean, every few years to make sure that you that you have the right CLEs, that you have the right number of hours, it is divided to certain, you know, like the, the break breakdown is, you know, correct and whatnot. So, assuming Florida and South Carolina do 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 something similar, I mean, feel free to correct me, you know, like in the peanut gallery or or whatnot. I mean, I would assume that like, if that were to come up, then it wouldn't come up until after somebody you know, gets dinged on something for, you know, for not having, you know, the, the right number of, or, you know, enough hours of tech CLE in Florida or, or South Carolina, and then that would then be challenged and whatnot. So I, I assume it wouldn't go on until, like, like, like if it has happened, it probably would st it's still probably working its way through, you know, the various, um, the various, like, you know, procedures and whatnot. There was a case in Massachusetts where a lawyer was sanctioned with specific citation to model rule 1.1, uh, for discovery, e-discovery incompetence, uh, and for allowing uh, spoliation to occur in an e-discovery case, but that was a rare one where they specifically mentioned 1.1. But you know, there are any number of, of ethics opinions that are resulted from technological incompetence and from lawyers not understanding how to use technology. Uh, and uh, so, although they don't necessarily specifically reference Rule 1.1. Uh, or at least comment eight, um, it, I, you know, I think it's actually fairly common that lawyers have, have been disciplined for technologically related uh, malfeasance or, or uh, errors. Yeah, and I, I mean, think uh, it also points out, you know, the, the duty of, of protecting client confidences and having adequate protections for against security breach and data breach. And I, I have a vague recollection that a few years ago, there was a 
suit brought against, um, I want to say a Chicago law firm for failing to protect, um, failing to have adequate protections to ensure that the, the client data would not be uh, intercepted or revealed or there would be an added breach. And I'm not sure exactly what happened to it. Bob, you may remember that. I just have this vague recollection, but certainly that would be a an avenue that clients could pursue, could pursue I, I would think, and which brings in the entire technological duty to understand how your communication system works, how your security works, and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, another I mean, example. I, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. There you go. Another examples I, I just wrote about the ABA ha issued an opinion on um, providing advice to lawyers in terms of responding to negative online comments, either the ABA or the NYSBA. Uh, it eludes me right now, but that's a great example. But the reason that those opinions are being issued is because lawyers are trying to respond to negative reviews and they're disclosing confidential information in the process. So that's a great example of a situation where lawyers have definitely been dinged and um, brought up on disciplinary charges for that type of behavior. And that's why these opinions are being issued. And lawyers are trying to understand how to deal with that because it's an increasing issue because there's more and more reviews being left in more and more places by clients and potential clients who weren't happy with a lawyer, even a phone call with a lawyer. And so lawyers are sometimes stuck trying to figure out how to deal with those things. So that's a, another example of um, tech competence in a specific context. And, yeah. and a note, I take Bob's point about, um, you know, it's difficult to, in terms of the CLE, but actually for going back years, you know, LTC4 has been banging the drum of, you know, you need accreditation and, and KC Flaherty with researchers, you know, I think, I think there's, there's definitely some, some substance to some of the accreditations. So you, you think that um, in some ways it, it would make sense, you know, rather than to focus on the sanctions, which I think must be quite difficult. You know, to, you could, I don't see why they, they shouldn't just across the board insist if they're going if they're going to come up with the, these kind of proclamations about tech confidence i think it needs to have some kind of teeth you know it seems to have some some something to say about well this you've achieved it this in this way right well i think the other way you're seeing this in force is not just through uh sanctions from uh uh ethics bodies but uh through court sanctions in you know, Steve, you may have encountered this, but e-discovery is probably uh, the the richest area, if that's the right word, for activity in, in this regard. Where, you know, e-discovery is so technologically driven, and and to some degree requires a fairly sophisticated understanding of technology to do it right. I mean, either you've got to bring in vendors or or have a, a pretty sophisticated understanding. And there are a number of e-discovery cases in which judges have sanctioned lawyers or their clients for, uh, you know, not for improperly failing to preserve evidence uh, or for any number of other technological glitches relating to uh uh, preservation uh, and discovery of evidence. Um, so, yeah, and that's really true. And it's, you know, sort of the amazing thing about that is if you go across the the knowledge level within the legal profession and with litigators, it, there's a remarkable lack of understanding of just core e-discovery principles. Um, and it's uh, it's kind of frightening uh, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's. Um, in a lot of cases, a lot of those practitioners are mainly in state court, and that maybe buffers them a little bit. But um, you know, I, I was always shocked by the sort of one or two approaches. You know, I I just won't do it at all, or I'll turn it all over to a vendor, and that 
as we know, doesn't relieve you of, as a lawyer of the supervisory responsibilities of the vendor and of even uh, associates or paralegals or whoever. Yeah. And Russell Adler in the comments asks about ransomware, uh, which is another aspect of this, because a lot of times these ransomware attacks can result from failure to understand uh, some basic issues about uh, protecting your, your email communications and protecting your data. Uh, training. And, yeah, and training. And, and to his point, yes, in fact, uh, there have been a number of cases this year in which client data has been posted online. Uh, the, the most famous one, I think we've talked about it here, was that, that the law firm that represents a number of celebrities uh, and uh, their, their data was right up there. It's mostly getting posted on the dark web and uh, uh, you need to uh, 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 kind of uh, go through the process of getting a, installing a Tor browser and, and venturing off into the dark corners of, of the internet. I, Victor, was it you who were saying you were doing that a couple of weeks ago? You were, you were playing around with getting into that, but. Uh, but you can get out there. You can get there and you can see this stuff. I've, I've done it. You can see this stuff posted on these, these, it's, these people very I just proudly posted post a link. this information. Yeah. I posted a link to one example. It was a Jones Day um, mm -hmm. case where data was released. But what's agree. interesting is that they, so, the, so there's been a shift um, from obviously ransomware, they would just say pay up. But speaking to a data expert a while back, he said that they've started to look to auctioning off the data, which is um, perhaps more scary because um, you know the, the people people have sort of developed coping mechanisms for the tra traditional ransomware, um, but they said that the auctioning off to the highest bidder potentially presents a whole different load of threats. Yeah, and it's um, you know it's 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 an issue with with clients as well because. Um, you know, in the Jones Day situation, a lot of that material was um, was client material. And, you know, when I give presentations, as you guys probably do too, to, to lawyers, I always say, you know, do you really want to have a, to call up your client and say, we've had a data breach and some of your material may be compromised? Um, I gave a, a presentation to a group of general counsel probably two or three years ago. And I just asked the question, if if one of your law firms had a data breach, but were reasonably sure that nothing had been revealed as a result of that, would you want to know about it? And to a person, they said, absolutely, we want to know about it. Whereas the law firms would say, we really don't think we need to sort of talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, so is that's there, a recipe for trouble, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> Isn't there an ethical issue there? Yeah. <laughs> But and I, anyway, we, we should probably move on to uh, another another topic. Uh, uh, Zach, do you want to uh, tell us what your what interested you this week? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it kind of started a few weeks back where there was a lawsuit where a lawyer said I had my client pay me in crypto, and then the firm was holding the crypto just as payment. It shot up like two hundred thousand dollars in value or something like that. And then he was saying, then they let him go and he's suing saying, wait, that's my money. It shot up in value. Um, so it was kind of a follow-up to that. 
Victoria did a look this week at what firms are actually doing with crypto payments, just because there is very little regulation around all of this. I think she pointed out Nebraska has something where they say you have to convert it immediately into cash, but for most states, it's still kind of up in the air. Um, she found that most firms are in fact converting it to cash right away just because they don't want to deal with the potential risks, inflation, deflation, everything there. But I thought it was just kind of an interesting topic because everybody's talking about cryptocurrency, the rise of NFTs and related things right now. And it's probably a question that a lot of law firms, if they haven't gotten it already, may be getting soon and probably have to have some sort of uh, internal protocol for. So yeah, it's. I just kind of wanted to open it to the group. Do you think firms should, well, first of all, should accept cryptocurrency? And second, should what do you think they should do with it when they have it? It's kind of an ethical issue there too, which is why I think a lot of firms immediately convert it because if you convert it and it goes down, then you haven't been paid the full value of your services. On the other hand, if it goes up, you know, you've been overpaid, right? And so there's some ethical ramifications to that as well. Sorry, Victoria, I jumped in. It was your article and I shouldn't have. I apologize. <laughs> no problem. And I definitely think, especially when you talked about like if the um, crypto decreases and it's really maybe on the fault of the law firm, if they said like, hey, we'll just sit on this for a little bit. It's not like a client issue or anything. And then it depreciates and you're just kind of like, oh, we did that work. And now that we don't, um, we haven't gotten back the value that we wanted for it. But I do kind of wonder, will some kind of, and I even asked some of the law firms that I spoke to, would you say like, hey, would you put a little bit, you know, maybe keep a little bit to the side and just say, hey, maybe it'll appreciate. I don't know if that's ethical. It kind of sounds like it might not be, but there really isn't any rules on it. And just a law firm said, hey, we're not a financial institution. We're not trying to predict like cryptocurrency, like how those, um, how those prices will decrease or increase. We want to just do our services get paid and, you know, convert it to US dollars or whatever currency that their office is in. And I thought it was kind of interesting. And this one firm, they kind of had that kind of like having, sitting on the money for a little bit and just seeing such a significant increase. And I just kind of wonder would some law firms be a little bit interested in just saying like, hey, maybe we'll just put this to the side and, you know, this can help us when maybe like there's like um, less demand for our services or if we go through another recession and just kind of like we can have this. It isn't like the client is being charged more. So I kind of wonder if they would think like, is this really harming anyone? But it might be against ethical rules. I guess it's kind of like being paid in gold bars and hoping that, you know, you just follow the gold standard and hope it'll go up or, you know, I mean, but I, I do wonder, yeah, that's an interesting point because, um, um, you know, I mean, we've seen law, some, some law firms, they like to gamble. They like to, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's the mortgage-backed securities thing from 2009, they go heavy into that and then, you know, you know, the, the money's rolling and then all of a sudden, you know, the spigot turns off and they're screwed. So I, I do wonder, yeah, if there's some firms out there, especially maybe like some of the lower, some, you know, some of the, some of the upper tier but lower lower ranked firms whether they would like decide hey you know what yeah we've already been paid for our services this this is our money we can do whatever we want with it um if it appreciates hey good on us we're, we're geniuses if not then you know but so yeah I, I do wonder i do wonder what the what the um you know yeah what, what what the law firms would do with that and whether whether they would you know get in trouble for it or whether it's still so 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 unregulated and so uh, you know wild west that yeah, you know, that, that, that there really wouldn't be any harm in doing it. Yeah, and it's, it's, go ahead, I'm sorry. 
there's three opinions at least. New York City Bar has addressed it, DC, Nebraska, um, and they've all been, I mean, I think that firms should err on the side of caution, like, and, and make sure to convert it once they receive it. I mean, I think it's, I would suggest it's pretty clear because I've written about all these ethics opinions and there's enough of them out there. And I always tell, when I speak, I always tell lawyers, let it be um, SOC, which is somebody else's case. That's what Professor Siegel used to always tell us in New York practice. Um, let, let someone else's case be the test case. You don't want, or SEC, someone else's case. You don't want it to be your case. And I always tell lawyers that. Why would you want to be the case that's making the news for holding, even if it's not an ethics issue, you know, is making the news for holding someone's um, retainer that was in cryptocurrency that's now quadrupled or is worth 100 times the value. The firm looks like a jerk. So from just from a PR perspective, it's bad. And then there's clearly some ethics opinions out there that are pretty clear about what you should be doing. And I, I would suggest lawyers just err on the side of caution because it is an ethical issue. Well, what about, there are several people in the comments, uh, you know, uh, talking about the fact that don't all currencies fluctuate and what's, what's different here? What's different? Well, they don't fluctuate like this. I mean, they yeah. don't, you know, I mean, you know, if you get paid in pounds, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to one day, you know, I mean, unless some, something, you know, like, like, unless GoldenEye, you know, comes in and just like wipes out, wipes out, you know, the British pound, like, like what they were going to do in the, in, in the Bond movie. I mean, you know, it's traditional, you know, like currency issued by governments don't, don't fluctuate like that. I guess if I was going to play devil's advocate, though, my devil's advocate would be, is it really that bad of a PR move? Um, especially with a lot of people interested in cryptocurrency these days, I think I would see the argument from some that, yeah, this is only a natural good investment for law firms. They're doing the best thing that they can in service of themselves, even in service of their clients, you could say, by investing in this sort of thing that they know, particularly the way the market is right now, will have a high return. Um, so it, I, not getting into the ethics issues, but just from a pure PR standpoint, I'm not sure it'd necessarily be a bad thing. And of course, you, I guess the other option of firm and I appreciate your thoughts on this, Nikki. I mean, you're paid in cryptocurrency as a firm, you immediately convert it, and then you take the converted funds and go back and buy cryptocurrency that you're holding for investment. Um, but the, of course, the, you know, the danger with it, with it all is it's such a wildly fluctuating uh, asset uh, that, as, as we all know, most law firms aren't particularly risk-friendly, and the notion of holding cryptocurrency in the hopes that it would it would go up substantially in value, even though it has, but it's also go down. So <laughs> I would think if you're getting paid in cryptocurrency, then you simply have to value it as of the time of the transaction and, and, and that's it. And then whatever happens after that is whatever happens after that. I think the, the bigger problem area, maybe not so much a, a big firm problem, is is for uh, clients who, if clients are going to use cryptocurrency as a, as a retainer against future services, uh, and then you're putting, you're having to put that into some kind of a trust or something in theory. Uh, I don't know how that plays with like IELTA rules and that sort of thing. Uh, but then what happens when, when crypto goes crazy high or crazy low as, as it tends to do uh, after you're already holding that? I mean, if it goes high and it's in trust, it's, that's the client's money. There's no, I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, uh, you know, if you're holding a substantial amount of client money in any kind of trust account and there's interest earned on that, that that's the client's interest, um, except when it's small enough they can go into IOLTA or something. But 
you know, if it drops, is that the client's fault or is that your? And Bob, <laughs> that's interesting that you mentioned about retainer fees. And then one of the law firms that I spoke to that allows their clients to pay with cryptocurrency, they said specifically they don't, but they don't allow them to pay their retainer fees with cryptocurrency because they're retaining it for, you know, the um, right. lifespan of the legal service because of maybe the fluctuation in the pricing. And he said like he couldn't, and I think he even mentioned like there's no clear rules on it. So they were just like, let's not go down that avenue. So I I do think like law firms are kind of concerned about like those pricing fluctuations and could someone kind of say like, hey, is this not right with like you holding on to this and then um, you converting it to US uh, dollars and then like the price is really low or I would think for the law firms, they definitely don't want to retain a cryptocurrency and then it's lower than what they actually agree to and it's not, a, it's not the client's fault, it's just the fluctuation of the market. So I do think kind of like law firms, like, yes, they can be a little risk averse and I can kind of see like them just saying like, I'll accept it, you know, to provide flexibility, but they maybe don't want to take that chance of like dealing with pricing fluctuations, ethical issues. And when Nikki was also talking about PR, like um, bad press. And I know, I know the firm that I was uh, with began accepting cryptocurrencies maybe four years ago, but <clears throat> we immediately would convert it to, to regular currency, that, that was just a policy. Uh, and I don't think we took retainers in cryptocurrency either. Yeah, how about chickens? <laughs> I comment there about rural lawyers getting paid chickens. We're not uh, bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, who, who wants to go next? Who wants to talk about something? Caroline, you wanna go? Sure. Um, yeah, so um, I wrote, well, it's, yeah, it's been a weird week, actually. Um, one of my stories, <laughs> <laughs> there's been a lot of uh, flux in the market, I think. Um, one of the firm, one of the companies that I wrote about um, was Latera, um, where, and I have to say, they're not the only one. Um, that, <laughs> they've got a lot of flux of people. So over the last few months, uh, they've seen seven or eight um, senior, really, really senior leaders, um, they're, they're either in the process of moving on or they have moved on. Um, and I think, um, so I spoke to one of their clients just to kind of gauge, because I think, I think they're being, with their clients, they're being transparent about it. Um, I think they're for a variety of different reasons. Um, and one of their clients I spoke to said, actually, they're growing really fast. So, so um, they, they, their revenue has grown from 40 million two years ago to just over 100 million now. Um, and they're driving really hard. They're driving forward. The next target is 250 million. Um, they're also backed by HG. They're very, they've got very sort of um, aggressive targets. Um, and I suppose, the, I mean, it's interesting that one, that one of the clients, I was kind of keen in how to write it, to talk about you know the, the client reaction and they, one of their clients with very one of their big clients was like um you know it's not surprising they're growing really fast that there's this flux um and i think you know um it, 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 it's, I mean, it's a lot <laughs> eight really senior people in the last few months um i think they have to any company i think it, we'll see this playing out across the industry i think another one where we've seen a lot of people leave is thompson reuters and they're all kind of going for this platform play um, and you can see, you know, they're, they're sort of their strategies, they've got very aggressive strategies, and that's going to come with uh, periods of, you know, lack of being, you know, so I'll use the word flux again. I think 
you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think obviously they have to be careful from a cultural perspective, you know, to, to make sure that um, it's also settled. Um, but, but no, I mean, it's just, it was just interesting. It was interesting just because of the number. Um, but, and um, Avanish, who, as you know, is the CEO, he just said um, that they continue to grow. Um, they're experiencing transitions for a variety of different reasons and that they're committed to people and customers, um, which their customers certainly seem to feel they are. Um, but yeah, so Thompson Reuters is again, you know, we've seen a bunch of the high key lot are leaving. Um, and it's, I think it's, it just seems to be a period when the ones that are really, I mean, Thompson Reuters obviously has had a lot of flux for a long time. Um, but yeah, it's, it was, um, so it's quite interesting. <laughs> now, what interests me, and you called out the platformization of it all, um, it, there was a long period where everybody wanted to be the Uber of XYZ. And now I think that transition to the Salesforce of XYZ, where everybody wants to be the platform that others build on top of and plug into, et cetera. But if everybody's trying to be the Salesforce, then nobody's going to be the Salesforce. So it's a matter of what works on top of that, how everybody is going to try and one up each other to actually be the platform that everybody wants to build on top of. And kind of naturally with that, I think leads to volatility. Um, and I don't think that volatility has ended yet. And, and, and also, so yeah, quite, and, and the terror in particular, they, they've had a series of acquisitions, haven't they? They're, they're very much on the acquisition path. And so it's not surprising when you, you know, when you put together a whole bunch of different companies, that's going to create, there's going to be some shakedown. And I actually do think, you know, in terms of the companies that are doing well in platformization, I think the terror, you know, I think they're, you know, I like, I actually quite like what they're doing. Um, and, you know they they they've they've seemed to be piecing together they've been very strategic but obviously when just repeating myself but when you put together a bunch of different companies it's inevitably going to create some kind of flux yeah, yeah. i think the, the other thing that was just interesting about what you wrote about was that we so often we we don't very often kind of see what's going on behind the scenes in these companies uh in terms of staff departures we see the comings because they all make a big deal out of you know touting them and sending out press releases and whatever else when they make a big hire, but when they make a big separation of, of whatever kind it is, whether, whether somebody leaves of their own accord or somebody is pushed out, uh, you know, you only hear about those things through the rumor mill at, at some point. And, and uh, even when you try and follow up and, and report on them, it can be really hard to do. Uh, partly, of course, because none of these companies are public. Uh, and, uh, and, and so it, it gets really hard to get much information about that sort of thing. Uh, and partly because people, you know, there's just a sort of a culture of, of silence around, around this stuff. Yeah, so, you know, I think it was interesting that you were able to good for you for digging that up and, 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 uh, calling it out. Yeah. Thank you. And I guess, you know, we'll be, we'll all be like looking at the market, I guess, you know, and just seeing. Oh yeah, just <laughs> just watching out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, think, yeah. I think it's interesting too, just legal tech being the size that it is in that there is a lot of money in it, yet it is a fairly insular community where if you're let, getting laid off from one place, chances are you've had interactions with companies that you're going to want to be your employers next. So there is an inherent incentive to not... I don't want to say trash somebody on the way out, but 
not speak ill of people that you may be running into frequently or in the future, which kind of makes that even more tough for people like us who are trying to get the news out there. Right. And I, right. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, obviously this is, the article is very deliberately clear about the fact that there's a multitude of reasons, you know, and I, without going into any of them, you know, and I think you're right that, you know, um, it's really difficult in, a, in, a, in an insular market to be, Sort of yeah, it's it is difficult. I'm I'm not going to lie, it's a bit of a difficult piece. But and there's a, you know there's very much it's not a case that all, all these people were forced out. I, and yeah, the piece doesn't say that. But um, but yeah, it just seems to know across the board. There's these bigger companies. I think we're all sort of seeing a degree of more visible flux. Obviously, again to mention TR, you know, obviously there's um again probably a multitude of reasons. There's been a number of people leaving there. So it's just it's just interesting. There seems to be a lot of um, movement right now. Yeah. And, and I think it, you know, um, I think Zach, what Zach, what you just said, is it's a good point because it's, um, I mean, I, I find it even for me as somebody writing about the industry, I mean, you you don't want to, you, you're always thinking about, you don't want to completely burn bridges uh, because you want sources and, and you want people to talk to you when you need them to talk to you or you want them to think of you when they've got a story they want to put out there or something. And uh, so it's always, a you're always kind of walking a tightrope uh, I, I feel like uh, in terms of, you know, you want to keep an arm's length relationship and, and uh, remain objective, uh, but you still want to have that relationship of some sort on some level. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough line to draw sometimes. I, I, that's not just legal tech. That's, that's probably journalism in general. But, uh, but uh, because this community is so insular and because we all go to the same conference or we used to all go to the same conferences and all that, you know, you just... You, you feel like you uh, you see that more directly, I think. Yeah, I think, Laura, I think Laura's yeah. like that in general, though. I mean, like whenever, whenever, like you know, whenever, whenever myself or someone else, like you know, that I'm editing or whatnot, whenever we have to write about like a law firm failing or a law firm closing or you know, a bunch of people getting fired or laid off or whatever, that, like, no one ever wants to go on the record because they're always like, oh well, you know, we don't we don't want our name associated with this, or we don't want right. you know <laughs> our names out there, like. No, you know, in, in this context and, and blah, 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 even, even if they're not the ones who are being let go or, if, you know, they are especially then, then they, they really don't want their names out there. So, I mean, I, I think it's just, it's just, you know, it might just come down to like the risk, risk averse nature of lawyers in general. Yeah. Yeah. The thing, the thing that I've found is <clears throat> because we are of such a small community, you get to know almost all these people pretty well and they kind of become friends, you know, yeah. I mean, most of them I like. You know, and it's, you know, it's coming to this, to this journalistic part kind of late and trying to be objective sometimes. And you're thinking, boy, but, but I really like that person. And boy, I feel bad just trashing her product. And, you know, so it's, it's, it, I've struggled with it from time to time. Yeah. So I, so I alluded to the fact that one problem is a lot of these companies aren't public. Uh, but Victoria, you talked, wrote about a company this week that maybe will be going public. Yeah, one of I spoke to Ironclad CEO earlier this week, and he was announcing that his acquisition of PackSafe, um, a click right transaction transaction platform. And he also said, like, and I remember his quote say, and you can quote me, 
we're um, going to be an IPO. We're going to be acquiring, not the acquired. So just kind of putting that out there. And I just kind of like, that's rare in legal tech. You know, a lot of the companies, they um, remain um, private companies, even after raising significant amounts of money. And Ironclad has raised significant amounts, I think over 180 million since it uh, was launched a few years ago. So I thought it was really interesting. And of course, Ironclad's also in the contract market. Um, we've seen a lot of investment and growth in that space. So I thought it was interesting and definitely think like, oh, they want to go I the IPO um, route. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, they're not alone in that. They, I have, I mean, in the CLM space, which is, you know, a fast growing and hot space right now, the, um, I know, just on my podcast recently, I've talked to, to Jerry Ting at Evisort, who said the same thing. They plan to go public. Uh, and Eric Laughlin at uh, Agiloft said they're looking at going public somewhere down the road, uh, uh, probably sooner or later. Uh, um, Nikki is with, uh, is with one of the, my, my case was part of one of the, <laughs> one of the first companies related to legal tech to go public uh, back a few years ago. But, uh, but that was, uh, now that wasn't, strictly legal tech. So. Well, that's an interesting point too, particularly about the contract space and the fact that it might not be purely seen as legal tech. Like you bring up Jerry Ting and I've had a conversation with him before specifically about how he's trying to position Evasort as a wider enterprise technology that isn't specifically for the legal market. It deals with compliance and other things as well. So I wonder if it is easier for them to be able to go public kind of with that play of this is not for the legal market. We have a higher market cap than all of these other companies here. So true. I, I remember in, when I went to an open text conference um, and it was before I really knew how big open text was. <laughs> so obviously in document management, um, there's sort of a slightly different story and, and they've, their presence has been shrinking. But when I went to the conference, I was blown away by how huge it is. Um, and they don't, they, they, they create, they, that year that I went, they created their first sort of dedicated legal division, um, but they don't count the, con the contract business is not the contract that they do a ton of stuff, as you know, in contract management. And it, it's not, it wasn't really, it's not classed as legal, so that it's a more generic thing. And, and I just, I found that quite fascinating. Yeah. I, I think I might have mentioned this on here before, but I did have on my podcast one uh, not too long ago, Jules Miller, who's a former legal tech founder, who's now a, a VC herself. And, and I mean, she made that, that point that exactly kind of what you just made that what, what she's looking for when she's investing in legal tech is not good legal tech, but good tech that can cross verticals and, and cross markets uh, and, that's to her, you know, that's her definition of what's a good legal tech. So it's an important point. I guess if it's doing its job, then legal don't need to get involved partly, right? Like, right. <laughs> yes, yeah. I guess that's the test. If you get legal involved, it's a fail. Yeah. Uh, who wants to go next? Oh, I had another article too I wanted to talk about. Yeah, that I, good, um, okay. Yeah, I wrote about um, just tech and like women and minority-led legal tech companies and just like, you don't see a ton of them out there and like, what's it like for them to actually raise funds? Like it's hard for every startup to raise funds. And I went to a couple and they all kind of said like, there are these hurdles that like you have to go through and you just kind of wonder like, if I was like a white male, with the same exact business, would I be dealing with this? And mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting. They were like across the board. They just said like, yeah, those are the glass ceilings, the hurdles that you have to go through. 
but you can still like obtain and you know hopefully get um, securing some of your funding. Some of the things are kind of interesting. This one woman she mentioned um, while she was like. I think she said she was like six months pregnant and she went to some angel investors and they said, oh, once you have your baby, will you still be interested in like running your business? It's just kind of like, okay, if a guy like had a significant other and they were pregnant, I don't think they would really question like, are you still going to be interested in this? And also um, a, a legal marketplace founder, she mentioned about kind of like being on those investor, well, those potential investor calls and being interrupted. And like, if she would maybe say something and being ignored, she's kind of wondering like, oh, should she make her white co-founder like the, the um, public face of the company just to kind of, I thought it was a little bit sad, not on her part, but just she thought like maybe the company could go forward if she had like a white person as the face of the company. I felt like uh, this is just something that we see across in tech startups in general. And it also is in legal tech. Even though when I spoke to investors, they said, no, oh, it's getting better. It's getting better. Like, you know, this is, if you are diverse, it actually is a, also an a asset to your company. And just kind of like people I spoke to said, no, that's actually like another hurdle that you have to go through. So we'll go mm -hmm. um, across. So but that was interesting. And people were fairly, um, they're fairly open to talking about like their, uh, their uh, prior experiences. And it's interesting. It's a super interesting issue. And a, a lot of people are writing about that right now because of, um, is it women leadership? I can't, uh, what is that that's going on? I, I'm having a mind blank, but we just, in my oh, case, had a customer panel. There's like a, was it this month or women's week, there's something like that, right, going on right now. I'm having a mind blank on this specific thing, but we had a customer panel at my case um, this week where some of our customers that were women talked about similar hurdles that they faced as attorneys. Um, but it's sometimes it's just, it's hard to keep hearing the same thing over and over again, having been in a, you know, entering law school in uh, 1992, somehow I thought things would get better. And with two young teenage daughters, um, it's, you know, it's, it's just frustrating when it's uh, with gender issues and then people of color. And it just seems like we take, you know, one step forward and 50 steps back and we never quite even gain, even sort of make any, have any momentum on this. And so, I, I think it's wonderful that you're writing about that and calling some attention to it because it's, especially in the legal tech space, because it's just unfortunate and it's not okay. Yeah, yeah. Just, just on that point of the, the, the progress or not, or lack of progress on that point, you know, the Kristen Sunday five years ago did that sort of survey of, of women founder, women and people of color founders in legal tech. And then she just updated again this year and the progress has been, the wrong way. It's been going down uh, rather than up. So, so I, I just posted a link. So when um, the two two women founders of Priory raised, um, in, which is a legal tech um, company, six point three million, they they I actually just to be honest with you shared a lot of their blog. Um, so it wasn't really me, but they <laughs> they shared some of their moments in the seven years up to their Series A, and they um, so some of them were just about being pregnant and in labour or all the things about that though. and then others were like they were sort of asked don't you just want to build like a I forget a nice lifestyle business for a mom you know like they so they, they were questions of you know why they were being so ambitious and all of that kind of stuff which I don't think that you would get asked um if you were a dad but or a guy, a guy, but um, but one thing I, I did want to flag is um, Gabby Stewart, who, as we know, she's two-time founder. Um, so she founded eBilling Hub and iTimekeeper. She sold both of them successfully. She's running an incubator as part of um, Bryce Capital, um, 
And she has some really interesting observations. She's helping to train women um, to pitch. And, she, and one of her observations is that sometimes it's a, ma it's a matter of just about um, women being taught or people being taught to sell. She's got a different view of it. She's quite aggressive in her, in her view in a nice way. I love Gabby. Like, she just says, you know, people need the, to be given the opportunities to be taught how to sell. And that's her, that's her view. You know, it's her personal view. I just thought that was interesting. But um, yeah, anyway, and if, and if you are out there listening and you, you know, you do want to be, um, have some training, Gabby is probably one of the best. <laughs> I don't, do you, I don't know if you have the link for that article, Carolyn. I, don't, I have it. I'm posting one, but it was an interview I did with uh, Basha and Mira from uh, Priori. But, uh, I posted the link to the Priori. Oh, one. did you post it? Yeah. I'll, um, I'll um, post the link to Gabby's um, interview yeah. as well, actually. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, Steve, Vicar, what do you got? Um, I, I, can, I can go. Um, yeah. So this week, uh, we posted a story on, on the ABA Journal written by. Uh, uh, our tech reporter, Lyle Moran, who uh, he, he spoke to Jillian Hatfield and some other people who are trying to come up with um, AI certification standards um, to uh, you know, help people be able to better vet and better you know, make sure that the, the AI that they, that they rely on, the data that they, that they rely on for the AI tools is, is, um, has been vetted by third parties, has been, you know, has been you know, uh, scrutinized, made sure that's reliable. You know, I mean, one thing that, one thing that um, you know, Kind of, kind of brought this all home. Is this? I mean, obviously, you know, this is this is something that's been going on for a little bit, but you know, with a lot of these tools that rely on AI to kind of take out the emotion, take out the you know bias, take out the um, you know take out the you know um, human failures, I guess, so to speak. Oftentimes, these tools are, are because these tools are created by humans. The data is you know comes in as data produced by humans. It can actually end up you know reinforcing some of these. You know, human failure, so to speak, and so you know, the idea for the idea for for these for, you know these folks are hoping that they can try to, to try to you know improve on that or at least hopefully remove that from uh, you know AI tools going forward. And I thought it was interesting. Um, obviously, you know, we'll see how we'll see what we'll see what what, what results come up, and you know, um, you know, you know, we, we know who you know who gets there first or who gets who who gets there better i guess but it'll be interesting just to see going forward and 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 if other people will, will will start to develop their own standards as well well if anybody's going to drive that forward it's jillian hadfield because uh, she's got a pretty good track record of driving uh, reform through so far yeah and she was instrumental in what's happening in uh, arizona and utah and uh, in other places so. uh steve morning well, as I said before we went on the air, since I have nothing really relevant to talk about, I thought I'd talk about your articles, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, actually, you know, a uh, couple of three product announcements recently in the litigation space. And it's, boy, I got to I got to say it, it must be a really exciting time to be a litigator these days, or it must be really exciting to be certain types of litigators that are willing to, to adopt technology. Um, Case Techs came out with a new product that Bob talked about in his article called WeSearch, which uh, lets you sort of ask inquiries in, in ordinary language and pull back uh, case law material, or even more importantly, any sort of written uh, data. And you know, I remember not that long ago when I was still practicing law, a partner burst into my office and said, yeah, I just hate this technology. 
try to ask inquiries and get documents back. And is you got to use all this language. And why can't it just be like Google? And this that's what I remembered that when I read read about this new product from from Case Text, because it does seem to let you ask questions just like Google. I think you asked Bob a question. Um, what will the law practice be like in the future? And it delivered, you know, some some materials in, in the database that you created, which, you know, is not that dissimilar in a, let's say a products liability case. You know, what changes to the product design had been suggested or talked about? And it would search a huge mix of products or a huge mix of documents that would pull up this kind of stuff. The other thing that came out was a clear brief product, which as I understand it, Bob, it analyzes the quality of certain citations or any citations that your adversary or you might make in a brief to tell you how strong that citation was. And also got the impression that it could also be used to see how strong any factual references you make, you make in a brief or written uh, argument compared to a set of facts. And that really compared to documents, me. yeah. I mean, it's analyzing against a set of documents, whether right. they're cases or uh, the, the evidence in the record or a transcript or, or something like that. Yeah. As a litigator, that that really that really resonated because we may not be to this point yet, but if you have a trial record and your adversary is making his his or her closing argument, and you're able to stand up and say, you know, that really wasn't quite right. Here are the real facts. I mean, that's a, that's a huge advantage. But, you know, the real thing that, that struck me about this, um, typically when I was practicing law, I got a case in, you know, I would talk to the client and I would get a general feel for the facts. I may give, look at some of the documents that the client gave me, and then I would formulate sort of a preliminary vision or strategy for the case, right? And then as discovery unfolded, I would go ask associates or paralegals, you know, find me materials in the record that were in the, in the discovery documents that support this, that, or the other. And so they'd go do it because it was cost prohibitive for me to do that. <clears throat> but how much better would it be is if the lawyer that talked to the client formulated the strategy in his or her head could make an inquiry using these kinds of tools and begin pulling out the kinds of things that I, as the, as the strategy lawyer wanted to find. And as you all know, that kind of, that kind of work, you, you go down some rabbit holes and you, you find something and it leads to something else and it leads to something else and how much more efficient, not only efficient, but how much better that would be. And so, you know, in the long term, when I said somewhat litigators, it's an exciting time, you know, some, for some really good litigators that can adopt those kind of strategies, it'll be great for those that have to feed this huge machine of associates and, and paralegals and support staff to do that kind of stuff that now, boom, can be done like that. That's an issue. So it's uh, interesting times. And Bob, to bring us full circle when we were talking about ethics <clears throat> at the beginning of the show, I remembered that some great person once said that soon it'll be malpractice not to use litigation analytics. Can't remember who that was exactly. But I appreciate now, your saying that, Steve. I, I wonder, I wonder if we're just going to soon get to the point where it may be an ethical violation for a litigator in certain types of cases not to be using litigation kind of analytics to support his or her practice. 
No, I think so. I, the, the one other thing about that clear brief story that I love is it's just it's just the kind of legal tech story I love to cover because it's here it is it's it's this woman is a lawyer handling a immigration matter pro bono uh, in in which she sort of gets this idea for what what what's wrong or what what you know why existing tech isn't helping her and and she just this is like last year and she just goes out and tries to start building this tech and. You know, with the launch, she launched this company. She's got, you know, Mark Britton, the founder, the former, you know, founder of Avo, and now a board member of Clio. Uh, Brian Gardner, who everybody knows, you know, sort of legal writing guru. I mean, all these sort of big names involved as investors in this. And this, this is what's so cool about legal tech is, you know, somebody can just get an idea and and. Uh, if if they're really going to willing to kind of work at it a little bit, and they've got some moxie and they want to get going on it, they can they can bring it to market, and who knows what happens next. Any other thoughts? Well, I speaking of litigation tools, I wanted to I wrote for my ABA journal article this week. I'll put it in the comments about litigation fact management software, focused on that this month, um, and. It's been about two years since I looked at that space and wrote about it. And there are a lot of new products, which I thought was interesting. Um, it's when I first wrote about it, it felt to me like that nascent space of um, uh, law practice management software back in 2010, maybe when there were just a few products. And now this one really seems to be a couple of them have already gotten acquired. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of others that have rolled out since then that are all cloud-based. And so, um, you know, litigation fact management software helps lawyers and their teams, you know, litigation teams collaborate, um, locate evidence, uh, create timelines, then link to the evidence within the timelines from which that particular fact was pulled. And so it's a really useful tool for litigators. And so I wanted to just peripherally throw that out there because there's a lot of new products out there in that market. And then the other thing I just wanted to mention was um, my above the law um, article, which we've you know, we've talked about this topic ad nauseum, so there's not a ton to say other than I did add a little bit of a twist to it. It's, um, there's a whole Zoom issue um, of lawyers and Zoom gaps, but um, uh, the twist I added to it was A, the fact that um, California Tech Competence, you know, that I'd first read about on your blog, Bob, and then also New York, um, two top administrative judges issued some guidance last week that I included in the article on Zoom protocol for lawyers since these gaffes have not gone unnoticed and they apparently continue to happen in New York and elsewhere. And the tips that they offered were, and I'll just share them really quickly because it was a very concise memo that they issued. It was like two sentences and five bullet points. Um, dress in appropriate attire as if you were appearing in person in court. Display an appropriate and professional background. No consumption of food or drink during the proceeding. Remain professional and dignified. And as an in-court proceedings, only one person should be speaking at a time. And they just, I, what makes me laugh about it is how come this even has to be said? You feel like you're talking to two-year-olds when you're like, I don't put that in your mouth. Like don't eat the dog poop off the ground. Like this just seems like you yeah. shouldn't even have to say this. And yet they felt they had to issue, issue a memorandum because clearly the message isn't getting through. So that kind of made me, it amuses me a little bit. And nothing about don't have sex during the court hearing. They didn't mention that even though, even no, though this seems to not. be a popular theme among lawyers. <laughs> Right. But so I just wanted to throw those two out there quickly because, um, you know, that we have talked about that, in, you know, 
we've talked that into the ground with the Zoom issues. But that being said, this was a new little twist to it. So I thought yeah. it was worth throwing out there. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right, Nikki. I mean, the, the number of litigation technological tools coming out has just increased exponentially. And, you know, the recourse, one of the reasons is it's the litigation is just a horribly inefficient way, particularly in the United States of, of resolving disputes. And, you know, I've often been of the theory that one of the reasons cases go to trial is one side or the other doesn't properly evaluate the case, either because they don't have all the facts or they don't take the time to do it. And, you know, query at some point with all these new tools, with everybody having access to sort of the same information, will that gap narrow so we don't have as much litigation? Who knows? I, I would throw one other thing. It's when the client says, I don't care. This is personal or some variation of that. That's the other thing that makes cases go to trial. I don't care how much I have to pay. I'm going to get this person or this company. And <laughs> yeah, but my yeah, that's anyway. what you tell them to get a new lawyer. In my experience with that is it usually lasts till about the second or third big bill. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Well, my rant is for myself for letting this go too long. So we won't be able to have rants and raves this week. But uh, I think we have reached the end of the hour and in fact, past the end of the hour. So uh, hope to see you all back here again next week. And uh, thanks to you all for participating. And see us on Clubhouse on Wednesday. <laughs> yes. Bye, have a great weekend. Have a great weekend.